The Bible reading for this morning is from Genesis. The first passage is from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the, on the ground. The second passage is from Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 and 15. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother, and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. These are the words of the Lord. Uh, just give me a moment, because I can't sit up. Once again, it's really good to uh, be with you. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you can all hear me, yeah? You can understand my accent, yes? Not too hard to understand. Okay, thank you. You're, you're very kind. Um, uh, in her excellent book uh, called The Secular Creed, uh, Rebecca McLaughlin uh, tells a story about the movie Mulan, uh, the 2020 uh, Disney version of Mulan, uh, that I think for various reasons wasn't shown in Hong Kong. Um, and at the beginning of the movie, you meet Mulan, uh, a young woman with incredible gifts. She can wield a sword, climb walls, uh, run on roofs. And her father says to her, um, your chi is strong, but uh, chi is for warriors, not women. Uh, Mulan's role was to marry well, but apparently a, a, a meeting with the matchmaker ended disastrously. Uh, when the imperial messengers come to conscript people for the army. Uh, she disguises herself in her father's armour 
and takes his sword and goes off to war. Her new commander says to her, uh, we're going to make men out of every single one of you. Um, Mulan didn't really think she had a role at home. Uh, When the soldiers pledge together to be loyal, brave and true, she can't echo that last word uh, to be true. Uh, The only person who really sees through her disguise is her nemesis, uh, a a warrior called Xianyang. Xianyang, if I've pronounced that properly, is another warrior woman. Um, And she goads Mulan into speaking the truth. Uh, When Mulan refuses, Xianyang shoots an arrow at her and uh, Mulan is saved by the leather armour that's used to bind her chest. And she gets up, throws off her armour, enters back into the war and uh, into the battle and, it, and, and has a victory. And when she eventually returns home, her father greets her with those moving words. One warrior recognises another. Uh, you were always there, but now I see you for the first time. And Rebecca McLaughlin um, asks this question, what makes us who we are? You know, what makes us who we are? Is there something about our bodies that defines us, our maleness and femaleness? Uh, something maybe like our chi, perhaps, that belongs to men, but also might exist in a warrior woman. Uh, to what extent, in other words, does gender make up our identity? Uh, now, as we are talking about before, we live in a time of... Um, incredible confusion about our bodies, uh, our world will give us conflicting messages. On the one hand, I don't think there's ever been a time where we've put such a strong emphasis on appearances. We're obsessed by our appearances. Our our physical beauty, fitness, athletic prowess are all highly influential in how we view ourselves. Impossible standards of beauty are kept up, are sought, and we're constantly dissatisfied with actually what we look like. That's on the one hand, and yet on the other hand, uh, nowadays our physical bodies are seen as being less core to who we are. Um, You've heard it said all the time in our movies, you've got to be true to yourself. Um, You've got to figure out who you you want to be. Look inside yourself. Uh, My sons go to a school where they're constantly told, be your own remarkable Um, Increasingly, our bodies are less influential in who we are. Uh, In fact, they're almost seen as incidental to our identities. Instead, you are determined by how you feel on the inside, what's inside of you. And so we get confusing messages about our bodies. And uh, this change is probably seen most of all in how our culture speaks about two particular things, uh, gender and sexuality. Uh, So today we're going to think more about our identity, how God has made us, but particularly in relation to our gender and sexuality. And to do this, we're going to go right back to the beginning, uh, Genesis 1 and 2, and we're going to have four points uh, this morning. Uh, First of all, gender is embodied. Uh, In Genesis 1, we see that the climax of God's work of creation is there in verse 26. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Uh, Being made in the image of God means two things. It means uh, relationship and representation. Relationship and representation. Uh, Amongst everything else in creation, uh, we have a unique relationship with God. Uh, We're supposed to represent God. 
We're uh, supposed to rule and care for the world that God has made under his authority. But also to mirror, that means to reflect God's glory to the world around us. Uh, But as soon as God has declared that he's made human beings, notice the first thing that's said to describe us. Uh, Verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Uh, God doesn't just make people, he makes us male and female. Uh, So right from the outset, we see that this aspect of our humanity is embodied. It's emphasized. It's highlighted. What does that mean? It means that maleness and femaleness are physically grounded, not psychologically determined. Um, All the way through Genesis 1, uh, God is making physical creatures on the earth, birds in the air, animals on the ground, fish in the sea. And when God announces his intention to make humans, he says he makes them male and female. Uh, He's clearly not talking about a concept of male and femaleness that is unrelated to our physical bodies. Uh, Just as he physically made us, he physically made us male and female. Um, Notice as well that straight after uh, Genesis declares that humans are made male and female, in verse 28, God tells them to fill the earth and subdue it. Now, filling the earth is something that humans have been extraordinarily good at doing. Uh, You may have heard about this time last year, uh, the news that the, the world population hit 8 billion people for the first time. Um, we're we're really good at filling the earth. Uh, Being physically male and female enables humanity to multiply, uh, to fulfill God's command of filling the earth. Now, the implication of all this is that any definition of maleness and femaleness that makes no reference actually to our physical bodies is not biblical. Now, it seems um, a long time ago, but it was only actually 2015, uh, eight years ago, that Vanity Fair, that magazine Vanity Fair, had on its cover the former Olympic champion, Bruce Jenner. Uh, Jenner had been identifying as as a woman for some time, but this was the first public proclamation, a picture of, uh, of Jenner, under the caption, Call Me Caitlin. Um, now, after coming out as Caitlin, Jenner then tweeted, I'm so happy after such a long struggle to be living my true self. Now, that Vanity Fair cover is old news now. Um, it doesn't shock as many people nowadays. Western culture, at least Western culture, has changed so much in how it thinks about identity and gender. Your, your identity is seen as something that you, you find within. It's not constrained to your physical self uh, or even your gender at birth. Um, the author and academic Carl Truman uh, gives this example of his grandfather. His, his grandfather only died about 30 years ago. Uh, but if his grandfather had heard someone say the phrase, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, he, his grandfather would not have been able to understand what that statement means. And yet today, that statement, that sentence is now, now considered not only meaningful, uh, but also so significant that to deny it or even to question it 
reveals oneself to be stupid, immoral, or irrationally phobic. Um, Truman gives another example. Uh, If 30 years ago someone had said that same statement to a doctor, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, uh, the, the, the doctor would have said to that person, we need to change your minds. But nowadays, if someone says that statement, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, the, the, the doctor is more than likely to say, well, we need to change your body. The speed of change over the last few decades has been so fast, um, it's like you've got you know, your remote control on four times speed. It's, it's happening really quickly. It's hard enough keeping up with the changing vocabulary that's used about gender. But as much as, as, as Christians might be anxious or confused about our changing culture and vehemently insist that gender is embodied and physically grounded, we also need to bear in mind uh, two things. Uh, First, there there are a diversity of views about gender even in our secular culture. Uh, Some will strongly insist that, um, uh, that someone who grew up grew up, for instance, biologically as a man and yet now identifies as a woman should be treated as a woman. In other words, a trans woman is a woman. Uh, But there are others in our secular world who aren't so sure. Um, They're happy to say that you can identify however you like, but there are still biological differences. Uh, There are differences, for instance, between a biological woman and a trans woman. And we see this played out every now and again, you might see in the news, with uh, debates, discussions, rulings about whether trans women can compete in, with other women in sports. So, in other words, there's a diversity of views on gender. But secondly, we also need to be aware of uh, the pain that many people feel about gender. Uh, whatever the biological reality... There are those who feel a deep sense of unease about their own biological sex. Uh, This is an experience that's often called gender dysphoria. Uh, It means feeling a profound mismatch between uh, their biological sex and their internal sense of gender. One author who experiences gender dysphoria describes it like this. Uh, Dysphoria feels like being unable to get warm, no matter how many layers you put on. It feels like hunger without appetite. It feels like grieving. It feels like having nothing to grieve. Now, those who who experience this um, need our empathy and support. Uh, They don't need simplistic responses or even worse, demeaning comments. And this same understanding needs to be extended to those who experience same-sex attraction um, and who who also even even to push it further, who feel intersex. That is, who, people who are born with atypical features in their sexual anatomy or chromosomes. And depending on um, what conditions you, you measure this by, accounted, the proportion of those people who are intersex varies between 1.7% of the population and 0.018% of the population. Um, in other words, so, so moving forward, we need, we, we need to affirm... All people, regardless of their experiences of maleness and femaleness, all people are created in the image of God and deserving of dignity and respect and understanding. Uh, So firstly, uh, gender is embodied. Uh, But then secondly, gender as male and female is good. 
Um, at the very end of, of, of Genesis 1, God gives us the appraisal of all that he's created. And in verse 20, 31, we're told God saw that all he had made uh, and it was very good. Now, that appraisal includes uh, the creation of men and women with all of their differences. Uh, just as our common image bearing is stressed, so is the differentiation of male and female. Uh, God didn't have to. God didn't have to make two different kinds of human beings. He didn't have to make us so that men and women, on average, are different sizes, different shapes, often think and feel different things. God could have propagated the human race in a completely different way besides the differentiated pair of male and female. He could have made Adam sufficient without Eve. He could have made Eve sufficient without Adam. He could have made one group of men or he could have made one group of women, but he didn't. He, he, he made a man and a woman. Uh, the one feature of human existence that, that affects so much of life uh, more than any other is our, our biological sex. That was God's choice. And he delights in this differentiation. Now in Genesis 2, we're told that there was in fact one thing that God says was not good. Uh, verse 13, the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Uh, the man is, is, is no good on his own. And a lot of people have observed that. Uh, there, there, there are ways in which we on a, we're inadequate. We're insufficient. Now, the word helper uh, often comes with a lot of baggage, uh, negative overtones. Uh, people often think that helper means to be subservient, uh, less valuable, less important. Uh, but that's not how the Bible sees that word. Um, in fact, over and over again, especially in the Old Testament, God is described as a helper. That's what he does. He, he helps us. And when Genesis says that God made a suitable helper for the man, that means that men and women are made to complement and match each other. Uh, the male and female have unique and non-interchangeable characteristics. Uh, they can see things and do things that the other cannot. Uh, that means uh, men and women are absolutely equal. Both men display the glory of God with equal brilliance. Now, just quickly, I think there are two implications of this equal but, but non-complementary relationship. Uh, first, uh, we need to see it mirrored in our lives. Uh, we need one another's maleness and femaleness to better image God. Uh, we need one another's uh, maleness and femaleness um, because each gender can't see things clearly and do everything on their own. Um, now, even our confused secular culture understands this. Um, that's why, you know, in, in huge multinational companies, their boards... Uh, or in government cabinets, they'll, 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 there'll be the insistence that, that, that women need to be in the room, that we need to have female representation. Quite rightly, uh, there are outcries when this doesn't happen. Uh, we need to have a female voice in the room, many female voices in the room. But secondly, 
we shouldn't push the difference in our genders beyond what the Bible says. Um, a friend of mine once went to a Christian women's conference where the bulk of the teaching was about female beauty and job choices and household habits uh, that are never actually mentioned in the Bible. Uh, in other words, we shouldn't impose upon people what it means to be male and female that goes beyond what the Bible says. Uh, expressions of uh, masculinity and femininity uh, vary. Uh, yes, in many cultures, women do have long hair, wear skirts and makeup, but in men, male, uh, many cultures, men do the same thing, right? Skirts, makeup. I didn't show the kilt. Um, Tim Keller helpfully points out that it's nearly impossible for us to come up with a single detailed and very specific set of masculine and feminine characteristics that fits every temperament and culture. Instead, you should look for and appreciate all the differences, inevitable differences, that will appear between male and females, regardless of the, of the generation or the particular culture. Now, understanding uh, that our bodies are gendered becomes even clearer when we see God's created purposes for sex. Uh, Genesis chapter 1 and 2 provide two complementary accounts of creation. Uh, Genesis 1 is like the wide-angled view describing the creation of the world, including people. But then Genesis chapter 2 zooms in and on the relationship between the male and the female. Um, we've already seen in chapter 2 the complementary relationship between men and women, and this complementary relationship finds profound unity between them when they're eventually joined together in sexual union. Uh, God creates the woman, and he brings the woman to the man, and in verse 23, the man says he explodes, like with poetry. You know a guy's excited when he started, starts spouting poetry. Uh, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Uh, the purpose of sex is to express and deepen the union between a man and a woman. But notice that this isn't a once-off situation between that first couple. Um, no, their story is true for the rest of humanity. Uh, it sets up a pattern that's supposed to be repeated for every subsequent generation. Uh, because the writer says, that's why a man leaves his father and mother and he's united with his wife and they become one flesh. Now, this isn't just the story for Adam and Eve. It's for every marriage union. Uh, now, that the, the man and woman become one flesh. Often people think that that phrase, one flesh, uh, means merely the act of sex. It does mean that, but it actually means much more than that. One flesh means more than physical union. It's, it's whole of life union. Uh, marriage, which is this intense social and economic and emotional and legal bond between two people. That's the context of sex, designed for the confines of a, of a lifelong monogamous um, exclusive union between a husband and wife. Physical union that represents all of life union, the joining of, of, of two complementary people. Now, that's the binding effect of sex in a relationship. It's what, what makes the breakdown 
uh, of a sexual relationship so profoundly painful. It's not what we're designed for. Uh, Sam Albury uh, puts it like this. Uh, sex is, is like a post-it note. You know, the first time you use it, it sticks well. Um, but the more often that you use a post-it note, the more often it's reapplied, the less it sticks. Uh, we're, we're, we're simply not designed to have multiple sex relationships. Uh, sex becomes less relational, more functional, and less satisfying as a result. Um, in sitcoms, casual sex encounters are made to look harmless and fun, but the consequences in real life are, are far more serious. More pain, more emptiness, more brokenness, less intimacy, less trust. We shouldn't be surprised because sex is designed to irreversibly knit two people together. Now, the Bible's words uh, about sex and about marriage and, and gender between uh, about gender that we see in Genesis are repeated actually during Jesus' ministry. So, for instance, in Matthew 19, the Pharisees are trying to test Jesus and ask him questions on divorce. And Jesus says, uh, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female. He said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Uh, now just notice briefly two things. Uh, firstly, Jesus affirms the binary nature of gender. There are male and female. But then secondly, he also affirms the binding relationship of a male and female in marriage. So first of all, the binary nature of gender, but then secondly, the binding uh, nature of marriage. He goes back to Genesis 2 and says that marriage is grounded in the union between two sexually different people. However, however much sin and our own human brokenness has spoiled our understanding and experience of marriage and of being male and female, it still hasn't obliterated God's purposes for marriage nor the distinction between the two genders. But notice as well, um, just a few verses afterwards, Jesus acknowledges that our physical experience of gender might not be so straightforward. Jesus' disciples ask him on the side about divorce, and, and, and his disciples ask him if it's better actually not to marry. And Jesus says, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who chose, choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept this. Um, now Jesus is talking about eunuchs, uh, and, and, and eunuchs, those who have been born that way from birth, uh, normally eunuchs are, are people who have been castrated, so to speak, for uh, particular positions, maybe working in with with a, with a king's harem or in government or something like that. But Jesus acknowledges in this particular instance that there are some who have been born that way. Uh, they were not made that way by others. Uh, in other words, they're not born with all the biological features that a male normally has. Now, this this passage doesn't answer all the questions that we want to ask about the reality of an intersex experience. That wasn't Jesus' focus on this passage because he's actually talking about singleness and he's wanting to dignify singleness. 
But what he does here is that for those people who, who experience of gender is painful and confusing, Jesus gets it. He sees it. He understands it. Um, he knows that this will be the case for some people living in this broken world. For all of us who feel that our body is imperfect and the source of so much suffering, even though your experience might be different from other people and it seems like no one really understands you, uh, you feel very much alone, Jesus sees. He knows it. He sees all and he understands. And you can, you can come to him in your confusion and your pain. So, where have we been so far? Um, Genesis declares and Jesus affirms that our bodies are gendered. Uh, being male and female is very much part of how we image God. And it's very much part of how we properly use God's good gift of sex. Uh, one of the reasons why we often find the Bible's teachings in this area so difficult, so hard to accept, is that in our world, gender and sexuality have become so integral to our sense of identity. Uh, and the Bible speaks of a purpose for gender and sexuality that is at odds with what the world will teach us. Now, maybe even in a group just this size, uh, there are some who, who, who have that experience of gender dysphoria. Uh, you don't feel at ease in your own body. Um, you want to change your body. Or maybe it's because you experience same-sex attraction. Uh, and you say to yourself, and you say to God, I feel like this. You know, this is my experience. Why, why, why should I have to change it? Um, why should I, I, I do something different to how I feel on the inside? Now, I, I firstly want to say, it's okay for you to say that. You know, if that's how you feel on the inside, if that's what you're thinking all the time, it's okay to say it because God knows what you're thinking anyway. God knows you better than you know yourself. Uh, you can express to him your questions, your doubts, your troubles, your difficulties, your burdens, your anger. You know, God is big enough to take it. But secondly, and this is for all of us, um, if we're all made in the image of God, our identity is found first and foremost in him. It's very harmful when we take some other aspect of our fallen nature and make it our primary identity. And the reality is that all of us do this. All of us do this. In this fallen life, we take some aspects of this fallen world and we make it the lens through which we view ourselves and everything else. Um, and it, you know, it could be your, your, your sexual identity. It could be your career. It could be your, your family. It could be some achievement. All of us take something and we make that secondary thing, primary, the way we find our identity rather than finding our identity in God. But the gospel brings us good news. It talks about someone who has entered into the world, who experienced everything that we do, who walked the road of suffering and pain long before any of us did, and he knows what it's like to be misunderstood by people. Uh, he knows what it's like to be afflicted and abandoned and abused and humiliated and he went to the cross and he experienced all those things 
He took upon himself our sin and our brokenness so that we could be embraced and forgiven. The gospel tells us that we are broken, but when we come to Jesus, we can be forgiven. Uh, in, in 1 Corinthians, Paul gives a huge list of all these sins that disqualify people from the kingdom of God. And yes, on that list, he talks about sexual immorality. That is, any sex outside of the married relationship between a man and a woman. And yes, on that list, he does talk about homosexual practice. But he does also talk about greed and theft and, and, and lying. But then he says to the Corinthians, and this is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul says that regardless of whatever sin, whatever lifestyle has characterized you in the past, this is no longer your identity. He says, this is what some of you were. If you come to trust in Jesus and build your identity on him, your identity is ultimately and eternally bound to Jesus Christ. Therefore, the New Testament worth well, the New Testament ethic is this. Be who you are. And you are now someone who has been changed by Jesus. Paul says elsewhere, you've got to take off the old self and put on the new self. So we seek after holiness and conformity to God's word in every part of our lives, including our sexuality. Now, this doesn't happen overnight, but it does happen. Uh, change should and does happen as we become more and more the Jesus-shaped versions of ourselves that we've been created and redeemed to be. Uh, now, what we've been talking about this morning is, is not easy. It's difficult, and uh, afterwards we're going to get together and process it a little bit more. We need to do a lot more thinking about this as we look at what the Bible says. And for many of us, uh, there is a lot of pain and heartache. Um, but when you bind yourself to Jesus, you are made new. And there is this promise of peace. Uh, for those who feel conflicted about their bodies, yes, we are able to find peace. For those who are singles... And would enjoy sex, but they remain celibate and find contentment. For those of us who were once promiscuous, but we find a different way. And there are married people who love their spouse and choose fidelity even after times of hurt and even betrayal. And there are those whose homosexual attractions no longer define them or control them. We can't promise God's way is simple or easy, but it is good. And by his help through his spirit, he helps us slowly, slowly, slowly honour him in our lives as we fix our eyes on Jesus. Let me pray for us. Uh, Lord God, God, thank you um, that you reveal to us in your word the truth about yourself, but also the truth about us. Um, we see that uh, we've been made by you, uh, that we are invested with incredible dignity, that we are creatures made in your image. Uh, Lord, thank you um, for the beauty of humanity, uh, that you've created us male and female, or, and all that involves. Uh, thank you that we have this equal, the complementary relationship. 
Uh, thank you for the gift of marriage. And, and thank you, Lord, that in all these things uh, we experience and see your love towards us. But we also want to confess that uh, we live in a broken world and we're, we're broken people. Uh, we misuse the gifts that you give to us. Um, and in our rebellion against you and your word, we stray from your ways. Uh, and we want to confess that even as your people, um, we are prone and susceptible to doing this. Um, we listen to, to what this world tells us, this world that stands in opposition to you and your created purposes. And we, we so quickly believe what stands in contradiction to, to your revealed word. And so, Lord, would you uh, forgive us and would you guide us? Would you help us as a community of, of ordinary believers um, to look at your word and to patiently uh, listen to one another and encourage one another and support one another um, and know that your way is good, uh, even though it is often difficult in this world? Uh, so guide our discussion in a moment, Lord. Thank you that we have the time to think about these complicated and difficult topics um, Lord, would you give us grace and wisdom as we move forward and we seek to honour you. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.